0: Good morning, uh, my name is Scott Dummler. I'm gonna read our scripture for today. It's uh, the Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Word of the Lord. Thanks, Scott. Well, good morning again.
1: Uh, Good to be with you. Uh, For those who don't know me, I'm Sid. I'm the pastor of community groups here at Hope. Um, And it's my pleasure and privilege to shepherd the community groups, to care for the leaders and the coaches. And it's also my pleasure and privilege to every once in a while get up and open the Word of God with you and to study it together. And we're going to do that this morning and really just kind of to give you some context for where we've been and where we're going. For the last couple of months, uh, the end of 2022 and beginning of this year, we've been looking kind of at a topical series The topical series uh, uh, Hope has been doing is based on Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human. Each week we're looking to the Bible and connecting how it speaks to some of the themes from a particular chapter from that Capick book. Um, A few weeks ago we moved, we kind of pivoted from diagnosing um, some of the problems that we feel with living as limited human beings and we moved from that to answering the question, well, okay, how do we live like this? How do we live faithfully with finitude, with limits? And the first faithful practice we looked at was embracing life's rhythms and seasons. Then last week, the second practice was recognizing our own vulnerability. And then this week, the third faithful practice is expressing lament and cultivating gratitude. So we're gonna look at expressing lament and cultivating gratitude. But I'll add, like Dr. Kapik in his chapter, we're gonna focus much more on expressing and cultivating gratitude. Uh, And to do this, we're gonna look at that psalm that we just read together, Psalm 65. But before we look at what gratitude is and what it looks like to practice gratitude, Uh, Would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this time where we just get to sort our thoughts and our hearts before you, where we get to listen, where we get to hear from you. Um, So many voices fill our hearts and our minds and our lives, um, sometimes it can feel hard to hear from you. And I'm thankful for your word, and I'm thankful for the opportunity for someone else to read it to us, and to hear it explained, so that we can once again connect to you, the true source of life. And I pray that as we sit with you and under your words, I pray that you would use them. Would you use them to meet us wherever we are? And our skepticism and our cynicism and our hopefulness and our hunger and our thirst and our fatigue and our pain and our pleasure, would you just meet us? And Lord Jesus, would you be high and lifted up in the eyes of our hearts, more believable and beautiful to us as a result of this time spent with you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let me begin with a confession about gratitude. (laughs) Can we just start there? (laughs) I often feel defeated by the should that we have behind gratitude. Do you feel this? Um, Oftentimes, kind of culturally and personally, there feels like this pressure to be grateful, to be joyful. There's this well-meaning push for gratitude, especially in the midst of disappointment. Gratitude often can sound like mother's advice to count your blessings when we feel disappointed. Or gratitude can seem like that subtweet, hashtag first world problems, when we feel low or discouraged about anything as if what we're experiencing, the difficulties that we experience are sort of somehow countless because we have more blessings than a less-resourced person in a less-developed country. But I really want us to hear that the Bible's pushing against these cultural notions that we have about gratitude and how it should work, honestly expressing sadness, what the scriptures call lament or grief, Lament often leads to gratitude. Even in the psalm, Psalm 65, there's a thanksgiving that's a response to God honoring and answering the psalmist David's initial sadness. And so sadness is not in opposition. Sadness is not pitted against gratitude. Sadness and gratitude are actually meant to work together. They complement each other. I love the way that the Christian counselor, John Cox, describes why these feelings pair so well together. He asks us to kind of reimagine that scene in Genesis chapter 3, uh, where Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You know, the flaming sword and the angel, and they're, they're out in the real world. This world uh, post-fall. They've sinned big. They're barred from paradise, and they're covered in shame and animal skins. And John Cox kind of reimagines this, that they're facing this world before them, brimming with good things and bad things alike, when all of a sudden God calls out from heaven, and they turn and they look up, and he says, hey, Adam, hey, Eve, you're going to need this. And he takes this sort of, all of a sudden they see kind of hurtling towards them, end over end, this sort of lunchbox, plastic container-looking first aid kit. Can you imagine that with me? When you have it kind of the back of your car, or maybe your parents had in the back of your car, and it's hurtling down towards them, and it lands with a kerplunk, and they kind of pop open the lid, and inside are two holy emotions. God says, You're going to need gratitude, and you're going to need sadness. We human beings need sadness for the bad things the pain and the ugliness of life in a fallen world. But we also need gratitude for the good things, the glory and the beauty of life in this created world. We need both not to be used against each other, but each to be used when needed, or sometimes at the same exact moment that feels so mixed. Because we live in this world that is teeming, which is so filled with So much good and so much bad, we can scarcely take it in. So in addition to making gratitude a should by pitting gratitude and sadness against each other, a second kind of cultural misunderstanding of gratitude that we live under assumes that you can have an attitude of gratitude without a practice of gratitude. We kind of assume that we can have an attitude of gratitude without a practice of gratitude. A popular author and speaker brilliantly illustrates how strange it is to think we can consistently feel gratitude without practicing it. She gives the example of how um, she she thinks that a gratitude attitude is like her yoga attitude, okay? So this writer and podcaster owns yoga clothes. She confesses that she like lives in yoga pants. And she even has like the yoga shoes. I didn't know they were yoga shoes, but apparently there are yoga shoes. And she wears them on the regular. And somewhere in her house, she owns more than one yoga mat. But she also confesses that she wouldn't dare publicly do a yoga position. Because her yoga attitude, her yoga clothes, her yoga shoes, her yoga mat would not get her very far in the practice of downward dog. In fact, she would inflexibly fail if she sat there and tried to do that uh, for any long period of time. Why? Because she's got no yoga practice. (laughs) She's not spent very much time doing downward dog as a position. Likewise, expecting ourselves to have an attitude of gratitude without regularly practicing thankfulness is a recipe for failure and frustration. And so Psalm 65 is sort of pushing against these cultural ideas about gratitude as just purely attitude, and instead is providing us with a template to start practicing gratitude in our lives. Psalm 65 gives us this example, a sample of life categories that are sort of worth thanking God over that help us to practice the emotion of gratitude over areas of abounding beauty and abounding goodness. Things in our lives, often everyday things in our lives that we can push back, pray back to God and thank him for. Saying, how good of God to give me this too." And so in a sentence, Psalm 65 is gonna correct our cultural misunderstandings of gratitude, but also it's going to direct, it's gonna direct our emotional practice of gratitude. That's what we're gonna look at this morning together. Psalm 65 does this by inviting us to thank God for his stunning salvation, for his comprehensive creation, and for his plenty-filled providence. And look, I know that those words, those theological words like salvation and creation and providence are so often used and so rarely defined. And so what I want to do is look to Psalm 65, and it'll give us these really great working definitions for those terms, even as we practice what it looks like to to do gratitude together. And so our sermon outlines in your bulletin, it's probably projected behind me at this point, we're going to follow these three acts of God, three reasons the psalmist David prays, three reasons we can feel grateful about the way things are. First, verses one through five, describe the sights of God's salvation. Second, verses six through eight, describe the curves of God's creation. And then third and finally, verses nine through 13, describe the playfulness of God's providence. So those are gonna be our three points that we're gonna look at together. Let's start with the first at the beginning, verses one through five, and God's stunning salvation. If you look there with me, before Psalm 65 describes the what about salvation, to thank, I love verse 1. Verse 1 instructs us how to thank. This is the how-to of thanking God. Our translation, the English Standard Version, says praise is due to you, God, which I actually think isn't the greatest translation. A better translation that most kind of scholars of the original language of the Psalms, of Hebrew, would say is actually, it's more literally, to you, O God, silence is praise. To you, O God, silence is praise. What's that mean? It means this. We so often think of prayer, of giving thanks or praise as speaking. Speaking words, whether we speak silently in our heads, or maybe we're speaking out loud in a group of praying, or maybe we're By ourselves in a room, muttering words up to the ceiling lights. That's our notion so often of prayer. But verse one, there's a suggested sense of awe that we start with to fall silent, to be still, to recognize who God is. It's an amazement at God's presence, at God's goodness, His will that are often beyond our words to describe. Be still. Light a candle. Draw a bath. Sit next to water under tall trees. At least turn off your phone. And be with God. And so from the get-go then, gratitude requires a patient silence and a personal humility, doesn't it? And if we're honest, all of those things seem really hard. <laughs> it feels hard for me, and I'm professionally religious. So why? What are we missing about this practice? I could sit there and tell you what to do, but let's talk about how to actually do it. There's a short story by a, a farmer and a poet and an author named Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry kind of attempts in this short story called dismemberment he attempts to describe the challenges and benefits of quiet gratitude. What are the challenges and benefits of quiet gratitude? Wendell Berry hopefully writes about this main character. If you've ever read him in his short stories or even his novels, there's a character named Andy Catlett. Andy Catlett is really just a thinly disguised version of Wendell Berry, <laughs> so if you're kind of key to reading him. But Andy, so he gives us Andy Catlett's thoughts, also known as Wendell Berry's thoughts, about what it means to kind of um, that kind of, what it feels like for him to be in this space, this devotional space, kind of the humblingness, the humiliation, thoughts that I can relate to. And this is his description, Wendell Berry's description of Andy, remember, mostly Wendell. So he, Andy, is continually reminded of his incompleteness within himself, his native imperfection as a human being, his failure to be as attentive, responsible, grateful, loving, and happy as he ought to be. His opposition's always fragmented and made painful by complicity as participating in what he opposes. But this humble, honest self-reflection can also shift to a kind of gratitude. Andy goes to sit, wait, and do nothing, oppose nothing, put words to no argument, he permits no commotion by making none. By keeping still, by doing nothing, he allows the given world to be a gift. I love that last sentence. By keeping still, by doing nothing, he allows the given world to be a gift. Through Andy Catlett, Wendell Berry is underlying two truths that our psalm is getting at as well in this first stanza first being still is an active effort being still is an active effort and it's an effort worth making because in this stillness in our doing nothing gratitude can well up it allows the given world to be a gift the second truth of psalm 65 uh, that this scene with Andy Catlett reinforces is this gratitude often begins with a difficult but honest truth. I don't deserve, I don't deserve. Andy Catlett's all too familiar kind of thoughts, right? What he calls incompleteness and failure and fragmentation and complicity in what he opposes. These are just 21st century ways of describing what King David was talking about in this Psalm using older language, iniquities, right? the iniquities that twist twist us inside uh, out, twist ourselves in on ourselves, and the transgressions, the transgressions that King David felt and that we feel that push us away from relationship, push us away from God and away from other people. And so in this is our story and our need too. I don't deserve, but it's hard not to think that I deserve, right? It's hard for me in my spiritual life not to get so demanding. If I get what I want, it's about time. (laughs) If I don't get what I want, the inner child within me starts screaming at a temper tantrum. The world and God are unfair. And again, that's honest and that's okay. But salvation is this wonderful thing where it's not only just what we're grateful for. Salvation is also the very thing that makes us grateful. Salvation is not just what we're grateful for. It's also what makes us grateful. You see, salvation is at least this. Jesus saves me from my prison of entitlement. He rescues me from envying others for what I don't have. Verse 4, God chooses and brings near. He will satisfy us with his goodness and his holiness. Verse 5, God answers our hungering hearts by awesome deeds. God answers us by his righteousness that will make everything all right. And so as we trust in Jesus, we can actually acknowledge our guilt and receive forgiveness in its stead. And we go from deservers to receivers from one up over everyone to one down to God. We go from having to hold down the center of a merit-based spinning universe around us to being able to, to freely feast as a charity case in the International House of Zion, IHAS. I couldn't resist, I'm sorry. <laughs> After all, verse five tells us this. God's movable feast is for poor, pitiful wretches, wheresoever we are. And this parte extends to the very ends of the earth, the farthest seas that we can see. Listen to the way that G.K. Chesterton describes this. So he kind of is helping the, gra- the grateful attitude to give us a picture of the grateful attitude that comes from a practice of gratitude. This is what Chesterton says about kind of this honest humility. We must certainly be in a novel And what I like about this novelist, God, is that he takes such trouble about his minor characters. I love that. And Chesterton also wrote this about a fellow writer and his sort of profoundly religious temperament like this. This is what he says of a friend. He conceived of himself as an unimportant guest at one eternal and uproarious banquet. (laughs) what does it look like for us to see God as that personally attentive and to see salvation in this way as an eternal and uproarious banquet? I think that's starting to get to the feel of gratitude. But even as verse 5 offers a worldwide description of God's stunning salvation, verses 6 through 8 pivot us in our gratitude towards the world itself. And this is our second point that is sort of Thankfulness over the curves of God's creation. Psalm 65 intentionally describes the world as God's creation by emphasizing God's power, his involvement in the powerful and expansive details of everything that is. Verse 6 and 7 display God's power. God's belted with strength, securely sets the mountains, he calms the wild seas, he, he wild waves, he stills the seas, he places every geopolitical peace in place. In the beginning of everything, God made all things exist, even the mountains, when they didn't exist, he made them to be, and has, has ordered disordered seas by his steadfast strength. And verse eight tells us this power extends to the ends of the earth, and includes the easternmost sunrise and the westernmost sunset on the horizon. And we actually just need to remember these kind of creation descriptions. This is why Psalms is continually pulling us back there. Because we need to re enchant the reality that we live in. We need to recognize the enchantment that's there, the hand of God that's working. There's sort of a purposefulness to phrases of Psalm 65. It's exalted poetry for a reason, it's not a science textbook. Right? It's not for high school primer on plate tectonics, or tidal patterns, or the phases of the moon. It's meant to be poetry. And so, so often, this is so helpful for us to see because we have these good advances in technology and science that can be used to crowd out what God's up to in this world. Sometimes we narrow him down to the God of the gaps, but other times we can turn God into this sort of spare tire God that we only call out when we need something that we can't provide for ourselves. But look at what Psalm 65 is doing. The God of Psalm 65, of the Bible of reality, he is much bigger and he's much more involved than all that. God's involvement in the created world fills in our feeling of thankfulness. I guess the best way to get at this is to listen to two different ways of seeing the natural world, two different ways of understanding um, and processing the world around us. So here's the first way. Here's the first description of being out in nature. I want you to listen for the living, squirming world and how it becomes a lifeless tool for my individual disposal. Okay? Here it is. If there's a buzzing noise, somebody's making a buzzy noise. And the only reason for making a buzzing noise that I know is because you're a bee. Then he thought another long time and said, and the only reason for being a bee that I know of is making honey. And then he got up and said, and the only reason for making honey is so I can eat it. That's from that philosopher Winnie the Pooh, A.A. A. Milne, okay? And really, I'm loading the deck here, but it's a serious satire of how we so egotistically view the universe. This overly practical and self-centered posture quickly gets and leads to consumerism, right? Honey, bees, all of creation, and all the world really just exists for me and my pleasures to consume. But here's the second description of the natural world. And I want you to listen for how the world is taken in in this way, kind of as a a curated creation. Sort of just like verses 6 through 8 in Psalm 65. Here's, Here's another way of doing it. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a branded cow, for rose moles all in stimple upon trout that swim, fresh fire cold chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pierced, fold fallow and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim, all things counter original spare and strange, whatever is fickle freckled who knows how, with swift slow sweet sour a dazzled, dim, He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. That depiction of reality, roughly the same length as the one from A.A. Milne, is from a Jesuit priest named Gerard Manley Hopkins. And notice the posture and the practice that Hopkins is doing here. It's wonder. It's wonder at at ordinary things. And there's also this sense of fun and mystery at that capital A, another. And if gratitude at salvation reconnects us to God, the Hopkins way of feeling gratitude at creation reconnects us to the world in a unique way. Gerard Manley Hopkins believes like Psalm 65, he believes that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus just like Paul in the letter Colossians speaks about. The practice of gratitude, of gratitude at God's overflowing providence is our third and final point. And it really kind of summarizes and ties up, this gratitude practice summarizes and ties up and builds on the stunning salvation that we got to see and also the, the incredibly comprehensive creation. It builds on the quiet humility of verses 1 through 5, as well as the wondrous fun and mystery of verses 6 through 8. And so we can notice the shift in verse 9 here, away from mountains and seas and horizons and majesty towards everyday, seemingly ordinary natural events. Look at the way that Psalm 65 recategorizes ordinary natural occurrences as providence by revealing that God is intimately involved in them. Yet again, and again, this time with abandon and abundance. The psalmist David credits God with watering by rain and river, fertilizing in furrows and ridges, and growing grain with preparation and blessing. But even here, David's gratitude can't help itself. The Hebrew word that he uses for water in verses 9 and 10 actually means to make overflow. God's plenty, his bounty, his overabundance surges again in verses 11 through 13. The spring and the summer's produce becomes a crowning touch. The wagon tracks, literally in the Hebrew, drip fatness. Then the pastures, the hills, the meadows, the valleys, irresistibly conspire to play dress up in the finest of clothes. A belt of joy, a flannel of animal flocks, a coarse coat Of waving stalks of wheat, and they, all of them, shout and sing together for joy. (laughs) Makes us wanna be farmers, (laughs) after all, doesn't it? But seriously, verses 9 through 13 tell us this are really two important truths God is not cheap, God is not cheap. He spares no expense, He goes beyond usefulness and into beauty. Second truth, God is not cautious. He's not cautious. He goes well beyond efficiency and into excess. Look again at verse 12. The Hebrew word translated pastures actually means something more like desert grasslands or even better wilderness. God is not just producing plants like, a, like grain that's useful for human beings to eat and live. God is also clothing a wasteland's drainage ditch, a wadi, with fragrant flowers. God is crowning a barren hilltop with a wreath of eye-catching blossoms. These plants on these terrains are not useful for humans to live. They are pleasurable. They're pleasurable for humans to see and to smell and to ultimately to worship God for. This is important. Gratitude begins with God providing useful things like food, but gratitude does not properly end until it thanks God for beauty and goodness. Gratitude begins with God providing useful things like food, but gratitude does not properly end until it thanks God for beauty and goodness. So how do we take all of this in, all of this usefulness and goodness and beauty? Or to go back to the beginning, how do we practice gratitude so that we can have an attitude of gratitude? Here are three ideas. First, we slow down. We pay attention. Verse one again. To you, O God, silence is praise. When we choose to see The splendor of that shadow or that reflection or that glimmer in that child's eye, we can never unsee it again. It changes us. Second, we give thanks even when we don't feel like giving thanks. Scientifically, it's experimentally proven, giving thanks improves your overall mood, leads to more joy, leads to more gratitude. And we know for a fact that gratitude doesn't come naturally. Why else do parents have to teach our children to say thank you over and over and over again? And third, the motivation to pay attention and to give thanks is believing. We believe that we're in this story A bigger story, a story of a God who made the mighty mountains, a God who stills the stirring seas, a God who scatters roadside blue-bonnet blossoms of flowers haphazardly, bursting forth and blossom for no other purpose than that the God who sustains every living thing prizes precious beauty. And finally, we believe in a story of a God who saves, who generously and extravagantly gives his only son Jesus on a cross to rescue us into a relationship with him. Jesus' life for my life, all so I can know beyond all of my many doubts. I am seen, I am loved, I am pursued, I will never be forsaken. What an undeniable expression of God's love. A love that changes lives. So, how do I, Reverend Mr. Glass-half-empty, pessimistic Sid Druin, which is true, how do I feel grateful, more grateful? I love the way that Mary Oliver, a poet, puts it in her poem, Sometimes. She says it this way, Instructions for living a life, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. That's why we're in here on a Sunday. You could be doing a lot of other things, right? That's what we're trying to do Monday through Saturday, too. We're just trying to pay attention, be astonished and tell about it. It, the over-the-top salvation, the generous and extravagant creation and providence, the eye can scarcely take it in, Lord Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words, the psalm, Um, which challenges us in so many ways. It's so hard to make this not a should. Even as I preach it, it feels hard for me not to feel like, get better, Druin. But I know it's an invitation that you're knocking at the door of our hearts. You're asking us to open the door wide and see what you've done. And I pray for the courage that it will take some of us to do that. To put ourselves out there, to risk disappointment, and to see what you've done. I pray by your spirit that you'd lead us there by the hand. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Amen.